Again, good morning, everyone. My name is Nelson, and um, you can thank me that I actually missed the memo that said all pastors are supposed to wear shorts today because we're about making um, blind people see, not the other way around. So I just wanted to, you can thank me later for that personally if you would want to. Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, back in 1979, oh, sorry. Hold that thought, 1979 is the year we're moving to. But I'm here just just to remind you as well, parents, if you have particularly young ones, the family room just across the hall is there for you if they become able to uh, to stay uh, with us in uh, in the way that you would like them to be with us. So, okay, back in 79, when many of you were not yet alive and I was eight, Russian filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky made a film called Stalker. It's appropriate for kids. Genre-wise, it's somewhere between noir thriller and dystopian sci-fi. And let's just be clear, I didn't see the film when I was eight. I still actually haven't seen it. I just read about it. So I'm just relaying what I've heard about this, this movie. The story centers on three men on a journey. Professor, writer, and stalker, who serves as a guide. And as the film opens, we don't know where they're going. But eventually, it's revealed that stalker is leading them to a place called The Zone and more specifically to a room within the zone. What is the zone? Well, the zone, said one writer, has the eerie feel of a post-apocalyptic oasis, a scene where some prior devastation has left ruins that are now returning to nature, cultivating a terrible beauty, a kind of bright sadness. The room, which is in the zone, is what has drawn them there. So what happens in the room? According to Stalker, the room is where they will achieve their heart's desire. In the room, their dreams will come true. In the room, you get exactly what you want. This is why, when they get to the threshold of the room, professor and writer start to get nervous. One author writing about the film captures the scene. He says they're in a big, abandoned, derelict, dark, damp room with what look like the remains of an enormous chemistry set floating in the puddle in the middle, as if the zone resulted from an ill-conceived experiment that went horribly wrong. Off to the right, through a large hole in the wall, is a source of light that they all look towards. For a long while, no one speaks. The air is full of the chirpy, chirpy, cheep, cheep of birdsong. It's the opposite of those places where the sedge is withered from the lake and no birds sing. The birds are whistling and chirruping and singing like mad. Stalker tells writer and professor, tells us, that we are now at the very threshold of the room. This is the most important moment in your life, he says. Your innermost wish will be made true here. So, here we are. This is the place where you can have what you want. Who wants to go first? The two characters waver because it dawns on them. What if I don't know what I want? Well, says Dyer, that's for the room to decide. The room reveals all. What you get is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply wish for. So what if they don't want what they think? What if the desires that they're conscious of, the ones they've chosen, as it were, are not their innermost longings, their deepest wish? What if, in effect, they are not who they think they are? These reflections are adapted from James K.A. Smith's book called You Are What You Love. We also refer to James K.A. as Jamie. He's kind of a household word in our staff. Uh, We've referenced him before. 
His premise in the book is essentially that we as humans are not primarily thinking beings, but desiring beings. He argues that who and what we worship are the most powerful forces in shaping our hearts. To put it as succinctly as I can, or as he does, you are what you love, but you might not love what you think. In our text this morning, John comes right out of the gate addressing our loves. Do not love the world or anything in the world. In context, when John says the world here, he is not talking about natural enjoyments, the pleasures of food and drink, Crab Park, the stuff that we are about to embark on in the second half of our worship, or the created order itself, although sadly this is the kind of dualism that is an error made by many generations of Christianity, that God is good, creation is somehow bad. No. John is not talking about the physical stuff of this world, but the world as it is in rebellion against God. He's referring to the world as the combination of things that draw us away from God. The next verse makes plain what those things are, and we'll say more about that in a few moments. But for now, I want to invite you to imagine standing at the threshold of the room. Imagine having the opportunity to have your deepest desires truly revealed and met. Imagine being faced with the question, what if I don't want what I think I want? If you're like me, you feel at least some hesitation I know too well the times when I have loved the world, when I've set my affection on things that pull me away from God and that such desires on a daily basis, hourly, moment by moment, are never far away. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love or that I profess I love. In this text, John is inviting us to take an honest look at our loves. Why? Verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So he's challenging us in this way, actually for a very good and loving reason. He's confronting our loves not to steal our joy, but because he wants us to know life that is full and abundant and lasting. He wants us to experience life that is truly life, the life that is made possible by the love of God in Christ. So we are currently in our fourth Sunday in our summer series in the book of 1 John, a letter originally written to a first century church that has reminders which, as we've seen in the first few weeks already, are every bit as relevant to our 21st century context today. Will you join me in prayer? And then I would like to read uh, our entire text for us. God, we thank you that you love us enough to challenge our loves and to challenge our desires. We ask for open hearts and minds and ears as we open this text today and seek to understand and to put into practice that which John is calling us, inviting us into. We pray for your spirit to bear witness with our spirit that the the deep part of you would call to the deep part in us and invite us into new ways of being and thinking and desiring and behaving. Be present with us today as we open up your word to us. In the name of Christ, amen. So if you would like to read along, um, the text is found on page 855 in your chair Bibles. We're looking at 1 John 2, from 15 through to 27. Hear the word of the Lord together. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. 
For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. I see this text as an invitation to attend to our loves, and really all for the sake of preserving and maintaining a God-centered life. Now, many commentators agree that since God, or sorry, since John tends to weave in and out of his themes, it's really hard to outline. And so as a preacher, I was looking at this text at the beginning of the week, I, I take a degree of comfort in that. Yeah, this is hard to outline. And yet I think there is at least a loosely discernible structure that breaks down something like this. First part of the text, John offers us a prohibition. Then he moves into a pay attention. Totally one word. Um, and then he moves into a prescription. Okay, so prohibition, a pay attention, and a prescription. To put it another way, he gives us something to avoid doing, something to guard against, and something to do. So first, the prohibition. We're cautioned against what not to love. For 15 to 17 again, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What's your gut reaction anytime a text opens with the words, do not? If I ask myself that question, what's my reaction? I notice a bit of a spectrum. There's times I feel defensive. Do not tell me not to do something. Other times, I'm skeptical. I'm wanting to split hairs. What does do not really mean? Does it mean do not all the time or just some of the time? Is this really a command or more of a suggestion? And yet, sometimes I'm in a healthier, humbler place. I remember who's writing these words, that they're coming from a place of love, and I actually want to pay attention. Like a child trusting a parent who is laid, laying down a very clear directive that's designed to protect, which, as the father of a 19 and a half month old, is an image that's becoming more vivid to me all the time. Do not come into the kitchen when the dishwasher door is open or when the oven is hot and the door is open. Do not put your fingers between the closet doors when I'm trying to close them. Do not scratch daddy's nose when you touch it. Regardless of how you and I feel about it, 
There's nothing ambiguous about what John is saying here. Do not love the world or anything in the world. And again, the world here is the whole system, the whole pattern of being and desiring that is antithetical to Christ. Don't love that. He's not talking about the material universe or its contents as such. Nor is he thinking of the people in the world as people. Jesus himself, of course, showed us that we are absolutely supposed to love the physical world and its inhabitants. What we are not to love, as Peterson translates this verse, are the world's ways and the world's goods. The world's ways and the world's goods. So why such an unrelenting, unequivocal do not? Couple reasons. The first touches on the question of our primary devotion, on this, the proper ordering of our loves. And here is the well-known if-then rhetoric that is used so often by John. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. He's saying it's impossible to love God when we're so consumed with our own wants. He's echoing, of course, in this sense, Jesus himself, who used similarly strong language in challenging our worship of wealth. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. So loving the world means holding on to our cravings and lusts with a death grip, clinging to the things we see that, tell, that we tell ourselves we must have. And this, of course, includes anything in the realm of sensual pleasure, whether food or drink or sex. It also includes the pride of life. Now, the word for life there is bios, or bios, and it has a range of meaning. It includes life, livelihood, living, property, and possessions, and it's often used to refer to possessions in particular. So John seems to be saying that loving the world essentially boils down to always wanting more and more stuff and having a constant air of superiority about the stuff we already have. Wanting more, feeling entitled and superior because of the stuff we have. And when that happens, he says, you can't love God at the same time. Those two loves are incongruous. This is an impossible endeavor. Not only is it impossible, incompatible, it's also fruitless. Verse 17 says, the world and its desires pass away. Back in the late 80s when I was 17, and most of you still weren't born, I started to listen to this band called the 77s. I quickly became a huge fan because they, they self-identified as Christians, so it was okay for me. But they wrote songs about everything. And one of their best-known songs, and one of my favorites, is taken from these verses. I've got the chorus uh, lyrics up on the screen. Do you want it sung or spoken? Yeah. Okay, I thought so. So it goes something like this. I was in a band that performed this song, so... The lust, the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life Drain the life right out of me Yeah! <laughs> so, amidst the incredible singing, don't get distracted, um, this really is the heart of God's message, or John's message as well. Love for the world is not only incompatible with love for God, it's death-dealing. It's death-dealing. The pattern of always wanting more turns us completely in on ourselves. And the self is simply not the source of life that is truly life. It doesn't come from within. So John is saying, we might as well recognize this world's way of being, thinking, desiring has a shelf life. 
It's on its way out. I love what one commentator said, Colin Cruz. He wrote, because of all that has been set in motion by God through the coming of Jesus Christ, the world is passing away and its days are numbered. And again, read, the world is system. The world's ways are passing away. Its days are numbered. All that is antithetical to God and his grace is passing away. It's doomed. There's no future in worldliness. So every time I hear the 77's lyric, every time I read this text, I'm struck by how often what we think or feel will enhance our lives so often erodes them instead. What we think will enhance instead erodes. Now on the flip side, though, there's good news. There is a but in the last part of verse 17. And it's a reminder that we're in a new era because of the life that has appeared, because of the light that has dawned. Verse 17 again. The world and its desires pass away. They're on their way out. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. What does it mean to do the will of God? Well, there's a lot in that phrase, of course. But in this context, it almost certainly hinges on the idea of doing the opposite of what's involved in loving the world. Saying no to the system of constant craving and flaunting. In the wider context of 1 John, doing the will of God means saying yes to trusting Christ. In John's gospel, we see images like eating the bread he gives, nourishing ourselves on that which he offers, keeping his word, hearing his voice, and loving and serving our sisters and brothers in Christ. So that's the prohibition. Next, set, next section is the pay attention. We're warned about those who would deliberately lead us away from what we know to be most profoundly true about both God and about us. Verses 18 and 19 read this way. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Notice the tone. Dear children, dear children, this is the last hour. Remember who's writing this, and remember his motivation for doing so. We can trust its good intent. We can trust its urgency, despite it sounding like a heavy-handed warning at times. There's another word in that text, I'm not sure if you noticed. Antichrist, hard to miss. Also, what a fun Sunday to be talking about that. Long weekend, Canada Day celebrations, likely some friends and relatives in the room, all of the kids in the room. What, what could be more perfect? I don't know what the, what the word antichrist conjures up for you. I used to be freaked out by it. I, I think I got my first full Bible, as opposed to children's Bible, when I was eight. And I remember hearing about this mysterious book of Revelation and then flipping back there and reading about beasts and sea dragons and creatures covered with eyes. And I figured whoever the antichrist was, he was probably scary and really ugly. And then at some point, I remember someone saying Oprah was probably the Antichrist. <laughs> and that put me in a different headspace. In any case, John likes using this word. All five mentions of Antichrist in the New Testament are his, and three of the five are right here in today's text. So he'd be remiss not to talk about this word. Now, whatever our preconceived ideas are, when John says Antichrist, it's sometimes plural. He doesn't clearly present the idea of a single, end times, beast-like, capital A, Antichrist. In fact, more often than not, 
antichrist usually seems to refer to a certain category of persons rather than an individual. That's the case here in our text. It's also important to recognize that anti can either mean against or the opposite of Christ or in place of. So with that background, a few things seem clear from the original context. Remember that the main issue John is addressing in his letters is false teachers. People showing up, spreading unorthodox views of Jesus. And often this took the form of denying that Jesus, who came in the flesh, was not, in fact, God. Verse 22 is explicit about this. Who is the liar? Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. It seems these were people who were big on a form of spiritual life, but it was a disembodied spirituality. Some form of Gnostic and elitist spirituality that rejected the physical and emphasized the ethereal or the spiritual. So their fake gospel, in a nutshell, was something like this. You guys, this Jesus did not come in the flesh from God. So we don't have to worry about material things. It doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. And of course we know from the early verses in this text, it definitely does matter what we do with our bodies. Another thing that seems clear is that this was a more insidious problem than they even realized themselves. You've heard the Antichrist is coming. Well, they're already here. And they've been here. They went out from us. So on one level, this sounds like the stuff horror films are made of. But let's stop short of making light of it or brushing it off. We make a mistake in understanding what John is saying here if we only see it through a religious lens. In the complex world of first century Judaism, especially in Palestine, there were all sorts of movements and men claiming God was acting this way and that way through this movement, through that man. This was as much political as it was religious. We have a hard time wrapping our heads around that. But they were so intertwined, inseparable almost in those days. So, to zoom out again for a moment, if you're a first century Christian, you would no doubt have heard lots of talk about these new movements starting up in neighboring towns, and you'd wonder, can this be Jesus back again? Should I go check it out? Or even, maybe this is the real thing, and all that other business about Jesus was just the opening act. After all, since he left, nothing much seems to have happened. A few healings. And some did go off after these new movements. And this is what's causing the problem John is now addressing. And it all comes to a point, verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Another important but. So in other words, all this stuff's going on, new movements, stories that look sexy and enticing, but you're different. You've been given the truth. You've been anointed with the very Spirit of Christ. You're different. Stay different. So how are we being invited to hear this in our context? See, our problem here and now isn't necessarily human beings who infiltrate our churches, who come through the door off Alexander Street, intentionally planting seeds of an alternative gospel, or worse, claiming to be Jesus. Doesn't happen most Sundays, any Sunday. It seems to me that people who may, in fact, want to lead us astray intentionally don't have to come into our church buildings to do so. We're with them enough in the other six days that they can influence us. Plenty of time and space to do that. For us, I think this text is a call to pay attention to both cultural narratives as well as personal habits and practices that, whether we're aware of it or not, are shaping us into something antithetical 
to Christ. So, if we're not on our guard, when we forget the truth that has embraced us, we can easily slip into stories that form us into people we don't want to be. We can start to turn into much lesser versions of ourselves, into the kind of persons in whom it is increasingly difficult to recognize the image of Christ. On the other side, there's good news in sticking with the truth about Jesus. Last part of verse 23 lets us in on it. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. You could see it like this. The Antichrist way to think is to think you can have the Father without trusting in Jesus. You can get in on the divine without really acknowledging Christ. But this is a mistake. It is only through the Son that we get to know the Father as he is. The Son is the Father's last word. As Brian Zahn put it, Jesus is what God has to say. So to summarize where we've been so far, John has given us a prohibition. He's given us a pay attention. He said, don't set your affection on what the world desires. To do so is to squeeze out love for God. And despite what such an obsessively grasping lifestyle seems to promise, it's always a losing game. He said, watch out for people and stories and ways of being that set themselves up as alternative gospels. And don't forget, John has offered these warnings clearly in a spirit of love to protect us from harming ourselves and to protect us from harming others, to protect us, in fact, from harming the world. So far, it's been all about what not to do. Does he offer any encouragement about what to do in place of all this? He does. He gives us a prescription. We're encouraged to engage in practices that deepen our life in God. Verses 24 and 25, once more. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. See to it. He doesn't get more explicit than that. We're not really given specifics, but it would seem that the prior warnings are a big part of it, which suggests that the whole trick seems to be about a vigilant attentiveness to our loves. I like how Peterson translates these verses. Stay with what you heard from the beginning, the original message. Let it sink into your life. If what you heard from the beginning lives deeply in you, you will live deeply in both Son and Father. This is exactly what Christ promised, eternal life, real life. What is the original message? It's a person, really. In a word, it's this Jesus, not some pseudo-gospel, not some alternative bad news dressed up to look like good news. The original message is that the person of Christ is our primary relationship. So it's as though John is saying, stay with Jesus. Let Jesus sink into your life. See that Jesus remains in you. Remain, of course, is another of John's favorite words. He uses it way more than the other one we were talking about. And in this we hear echoes of his gospel where in John 15 he records Jesus saying it repeatedly. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. That's verse 4. Verse 5 continues, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
verses 9 and 10, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Remain, remain, remain. It's not enough to have heard and assented to Jesus in the past. He wants us to continue to be present and active in the lives of those who have heard it. Or he wants to continue being present and active in our lives, those who have heard this message. So to remain is to continually open up to his constant presence and activity. I began this morning by suggesting that in this text, John is inviting us to attend to our loves. What might that look like? I invite you to come back with me in your imagination to the story I told at the beginning, seeing ourselves standing at the threshold to the room, the room that will reveal our deepest desires and then give them to us. What if we didn't have to fear such a revelation? What if we were assured that love was standing in the room, just on the other side of the threshold, waiting and longing to welcome us? waiting to reveal our deepest desires, yes, but not for the purpose of scaring or condemning or embarrassing us, but to refashion our desires so that they too conform to the shape of love. What if we could enter the room with the confidence of the psalmist, with prayer on our lips? Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What if we were to approach the room knowing that there we would find the kindest being in the universe? Love these thoughts from one writer, Brian Morikon. So when we say God is the kindest being in the universe, we don't mean he's a nice guy waving off sin with a, that's okay, sweetie. We mean that God is pure light, who if you'll allow, will burn off anything that keeps you from being fully alive. His kindness leads to repentance. That is, God's goodness turns us from habits that destroy towards spirit-filled habits that bring about joy. As we continue into summer, as a way of partnering with the Spirit and remaining in Christ, I want to invite you to become aware of your loves by asking yourselves a few questions. We could call this a practices audit. So here are a few questions with the help of Jamie Smith. Look at your daily, weekly, monthly, annual routines. What are the things that you do that do something to you? What are the consistent practices in your life? What vision of the good life is carried in your habits? What kind of person do they want you to become? To what kingdom are those rituals aimed? What do these practices want you to love? Why are these good questions to take with us into the week and into the summer? Because we don't live in a vacuum. Our lives are always being lived in formative space. We form habits that turn into loves, and then our loves shape us. So, may we attend well to our loves today, this week, in the weeks to come. May God give us the courage to open ourselves to the pure light of God, the light that wants to burn off loves that keep us from life that's truly life, and may we experience the very joy of Christ as we remain in him. Let's have a moment of stillness, and I'll offer a prayer to close, and then we'll come to the table 
one of the practices that we share together that forms our loves toward him. Let's be still.